Good morning. Good to be here today. I'm excited to talk about prayer this morning because mainly, well not mainly, but one of the major reasons is because of the time I was able to spend studying prayer. It was really uh, a blessing and I'm blessed every time I study God's word in preparation to, to preach because I think on who's going to be here, who's going to hear this, how is God going to use these words, this attempt to proclaim his word to change lives, and it's very meaningful. Uh, and then secondary to that is this the way God works in me in, in that time. And so with prayer, it's really been uh, satisfying in ways that I've, I've not felt satisfied by God in a long time. And so it's, it's, it's meaningful because of how meaningful prayer is. And so to really study it and to, and to see what other guys I respect have to say about it, to see what God's Word, most of all, has to say about it, has, has really done a work in me. And so I'm very hopeful this morning that the same will be true for you. Uh, in order to really work through it, because there's so much that can be said about it, um, just like we did last week with the Word of God, we're going to look at four questions. Who is God? What has He done, namely through Christ? Who are we? And then what are we to do because of all of that? Uh, and it's important that we see it in that order, because if we don't see it in that order, then we'll start with the last one, and we'll, what do I do, what do I do? And we'll not remember who God is and what He's done and who that makes us. And then what we do flows out of who we are because of who God is and what He's done. And so just to, I'm right off, I'm going to go through those four questions. I'm just going to walk through and answer them. And then we're going to look at two more questions that are specific to prayer. And then at the end, really the second half of the sermon is going to be walking through a passage of Scripture uh, that is probably familiar to most of you the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus shows us how to pray. And I'm, I'm hopeful that in doing so, we will, we will build to that. It's not just, this is how you pray, because remember, we don't want to answer the last question first. But we'll see who God is, we'll see what He's done, we'll see how that's changed us and what that means, and then we respond. So who is God? Well, He is the sovereign creator of the universe. We know this, we can say it, they're words. But these words have meaning. He is truly the most supreme being in existence. He's the almighty king of an eternal kingdom. He he's, should be feared more than anything in existence. He is God of everything. There's no one who can say anything against him and be right. All that he does, whether we think it's good or not, is good because he is the creator of all things. And he's worthy of praise and he's worthy of fear. And he's holy. He's so holy that so set apart that nothing comes close to him. Everything is far above him. He transcends us in in ways that we can't even imagine. That the space between how far beneath him we are is unimaginable. He's infinite and we are finite. Everything but him is finite. And so holy that that in the Old Testament we see he rests on a mountain. And if you even touch the mountain, like you've seen mountains, they're humongous. If you were to even touch the mountain, you would die. You can't enter His presence because He's holy or you die. Not He sentences you to death because you came in there without permission. Just being there kills you. So things that we, it's hard for us to figure out. Like we understand like, okay, there's toxic gases and they kill you. But it's not like that. Just being in His presence kills you. His very presence has something in it that kills you. That's how set apart He is. Yet, He is also... Loving and gracious and satisfying as Father to those who He calls children through Christ. 
He delights in His children. And though He, he hates sin, in fact, His Word tells us not only does He hate sin, but He hates the sinner, the, the evildoer, the worker of iniquity. And this is found all over Scripture, just to name some. Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5, Hosea 9.15, Romans 9.13, and then implicitly elsewhere, God hates sin, and He pours out wrath on sin and sinners for eternity in hell. But though He hates sin, what has God done in Christ? Well, Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So He's demonstrated this amazing grace. He has made it possible for us to come near this holy Creator of all things and call Him Father. Ephesians 1.4-8, in love He predestined us for adoptions to Himself. He, sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. And so who are we as believers? Romans 8, 5, or 15 through 17. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We're heirs to rule and reign with Christ because of what He's done through Christ. John 1, 12 and 13, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Not just adopted, but reborn as His children. There's no question we belong to Him now. Ephesians 1, 11-13, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we've been purchased and sealed by this God creator of the universe. These are things we talk about a lot. We're the family of God. We see it a lot as our identity. We have to really get this. This creator of all things. The one we can go nowhere near because we're sinners. And he hates sinners. He pours out wrath on sinners. Has, before anything began, decided that these sinners he hates, he would draw near. He would make it possible to call them children. And this holy king deserving of all fear, opens the door for his children. No one else would go to this king, no one else could go to this king, but his children. Through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who made it all possible. And then, to make sure we get it, he's laid before us an inheritance and sealed it. It's, it's ours for sure. No longer can you do anything to undo this. There's no sin. There's no way to disappoint Him. There's no way for Him to say, never mind, I'm sending you back. It's yours. You have it. Always access to the Father, the Creator, the King of all things.
And so then what then should we do? We should pray. We should go freely, often, and confidently before the King. And as His children realize we're nothing in ourselves, we have nothing to offer, but He's given us everything, and we go to Him. We use this, this, uh, this journal called the Community Bible Reading CBR, and we encourage you to use it. If they're in the back, there's a box of them. If you want to use it, please have one. It's, we ask if, you, if you're willing, give $5 to help cover that cost. And if you're not going to use it, please don't take one. But we use these in a way to read through God's Word and to pray God's Word. And there's an acronym used in that book and used elsewhere, ACTS, A-C-T-S. It, and it's really drawn out of Isaiah 6 where we see Isaiah go before God in this response to being in the throne room of God, to being before the king of the universe. How does Isaiah respond? Well, he realizes who God is because he sees it. He feels it. Not only does he realize who God is, but he realizes who he is. And he begins to confess his sins. And he, and he, he knows that he has no other option but then to just be grateful that God would allow this and him not be dead. And then God gives him some instruction and he knows he's dependent on God, so he's request, he makes requests. And so that's where this idea comes from. And this acronym is very helpful. And so we're going we're gonna to use it in, in explaining this understanding of what it means to do prayer. Um, but then we'll also, hopefully, you'll use it as you walk through this journal and read God's Word. And you'll ask these four questions. Who's God? What has He done? Who am I? What do I do? And then you'll see the right way to respond to all of this is first, you, you know who God is and you adore Him in adoration. We sense the weight of His glory, how undeserving we are because of how reverent we should be. He's holy. He's set apart. Feel the reverence. Adore Him. And then the only right response is then to confess, I, I have nothing I am nothing. It's not necessarily the way the Catholics view going to the priest and confess every individual sin. It would be impossible because there's no way you even know all of your sin, the ways your heart is against God. But you come to this understanding, this realization that I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. He's too holy. I want to be near to Him and I can't be. So you need Christ. And in this position of your heart, you, you confess that. And then... We're grateful that He would save us. We're grateful that, that salvation is a possibility. We're grateful that He has done everything necessary to draw us near to Himself. And so with thanksgiving, we pray. Grateful for the grace. Never feeling entitled to the grace. I mean, it's, it's this position. The position of a Christian, a child of God, is far different than a religious person who thinks they've earned it and they belong to God. It's, it's far different because the entitlement makes you think of your Christianity like, of course I'm a Christian. Of course He would save me. I'm morally upstanding. I'm deserving of this. I've paid my dues. I've given tithe. I take my communion. I sing the songs. I listen to the sermon. I'm there every Sunday. Of course God would hear my prayers. Of course He would answer my prayers. When our position should be, as a Christian, I cannot believe this is possible. I can't believe He would save me. I can't believe I'm deserving of any blessing. I can't believe I can go into the throne room of God before the king of the universe and he would allow me to stand there. He would know my sin better than I know my sin and welcome me in still. 
That Christ would give himself up and clothe me in his righteousness, becoming sin, taking the wrath I deserve. I cannot believe this is possible, but it is. And so I'm grateful. And that's the position of our heart. Not these are the things you have to do. But this is reality because of who God is, because of what he's done, because of what that makes us. Then we ask. And this word supplication is not just requesting. Because if you're entitled, then you can just make requests selfishly. But if you understand you don't deserve anything, but God has been gracious and you're grateful, then there's no way you would make a selfish request. But instead, every request, every supplication would be begging God to continue this work. Change me. Make me better. Thank you for the gospel. Continue to work in me and continue to work through me that your church would establish your kingdom. It's begging God to move and continue this work because that's what God wants. He wants us to ask Him. He wants us to depend on Him. He wants to do this work. And He's made it available, this opportunity for us to go to Him in, in our adoration, in our confession, in our thanksgiving with supplication. And all of this is far more about belief than it is about the doing. Where is your heart in this? So, that is... The four questions, but for me it brings up two questions about prayer. If all that's true, the questions are, why don't we pray? And how do we pray? That's the position of our heart. These things are true about God, what He's done, who He's made us, and what we do when we pray. We know that. But why don't we then? And how do we? And so why don't we pray? I could take a poll. Why don't you guys pray? I don't know. I guess I just don't feel like it sometimes. It seems impractical to pray without ceasing. Well, I think the first thing we do is make excuses, but we know we shouldn't, so they're, they're good excuses. Like, well, God's sovereign, so... I mean, He's going to do what He wants. He's got it. Or maybe just a lazy idea that we, wouldn't, we would never say that out loud, but I, I know He's going to take care of me. I trust Him, so I don't need to pray. He's got it. I know things are bad, but God's in control, so there's no need for me to, to pray. Or something similar, though it sounds completely different, we would doubt and we'd say things like, well, I've tried. God doesn't hear me. He doesn't answer me. So why bother? Same result. God's in control. I have no control. I can't change his mind. He's going to do what he wants. Or I trust him to be in control. Either way, we're not praying. And those seem like good excuses, but... Scripture is abundantly clear that we should pray. He commands us to pray. Pray without ceasing. Come before me. He's he's not moving. He's still there. Come to me and pray. You can pray. You're free to pray. Jesus demonstrates prayer. He goes off and he prays. Prays with his disciples. The Apostle Paul always talks about how much he prays. He prays for God to change the people he's writing. He prays thanks to God for the people he's writing. At the end, he says, pray for me. Pray for my brothers. We're in this together. Pray, 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 pray. Why pray? God's in control. He's going to take care of it. Why pray then? Well, obedience should be the only answer we need. He told us to pray. We should pray. But there's something more significant. It's more meaningful for me to consider. Yes, God is in control. He's sovereign over all things. And in His sovereign design, He has set it up in such a way that our prayers bring about what He's going to do. He's invited us to share in this 
He's accomplishing something. He's, he's already sent Christ. Christ has died and resurrected. It's already, but not yet. There's still work to be done. So the work of the church and the prayers of the people of God bring about the will of God. He's inviting us to share in this what great joy there is to see God answer prayers, to see life change. Why preach then? Why share the gospel then? Yes, God is sovereign over all things, but it's foolish to not obey Him. And it's foolish to think we're going to find satisfaction in just being robots in all of this. We're not robots. We're the people of God, the children of God, and He uses our words, our action, our hands, our feet, and our prayer to accomplish His will. And it's amazing that He would invite us to share in that. And the saints throughout history have prayed. So then yet, God hears our prayers. And and it's enough to say we pray to be obedient. But not even considering whether or not the prayers are answered, it's meaningful. Because we're participating in victory over sin and death. We're participating in the victory over evil. We're defeating the enemy. It's our war. We battle. Spirit is far more real than reality. And our prayer is the fight. And God does answer prayers. In fact, I would say every, every prayer is answered. Some prayer, the answer is no. Lord, give me a Lamborghini. I've been praying that since I was 12. I'm just kidding. Some prayer, the answer is no. But sometimes it's just not happened yet. And, and God knows. So it's going to happen. Just think about it. Since, since the resurrection, since the ascension of Christ, the saints have been praying, Lord, come. Lord, return. Establish your kingdom. Take away the pain. Take away the sin. Finish this already. The prayers have been piling up. Billions of prayers. God, come. Is God not going to answer that prayer? Certainly He will. Right? I hope. That's our only hope. That prayer would be answered. Well, in Revelation, I think it's chapter 8. It, it's a very mysterious book, so you have to read through the symbolism. But there is, there is not just a pile of prayers, but prayers are before God burning. And it's an incense to God. It's, it's beautiful to Him. He enjoys it. Specifically, these prayers that He would come and finish this already. And it says that the, an angel standing there with, with a, a center, and it's, it's a bowl that the ashes go in. So takes the prayers from the altar, and He dumps them on the earth. So what is this? This is God... This pile of prayers throughout history, Lord, come, let your will be done. Let the kingdom of God be here and now. Burning before God is a fragrant offering to Him. And He uses those prayers to purge the world. To establish His new kingdom. There will come a time at the end of all things, those prayers are finally answered. And the same is true for every prayer. That we would beg God. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's not yet. And sometimes it's yes, have it, enjoy. But every prayer is answered. And what we know is that Timothy Keller says, we can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. So it feels like sometimes God answered this already. It feels like God doesn't care. It may feel like 
Throwing the prayers up there is not doing anything, so why try? But God knows what's best for us, His children, far more than we know what's best for us because He knows everything. So much so that we can be confident, not only is our prayer going to be answered, but it's going to be answered the way we would answer it if we knew what God knew. There's assurance there. At least there is for me. Our Father wants what's best for His children like any good father would want for their children. So, still, knowing all of that, we still don't pray. So perhaps there's other reasons, and I think, I think there are. I read an article earlier this week or last week, and it started with, it's about pastors praying for their church, and it started with, I'm sure your desire is to pray, but sadly, desire is never enough. So right away, I was like, wait a minute. Yes, I desire to pray. That should be enough. I should tell people that. But it's not, and it's evident in Scripture. Maybe you remember James, John, and Peter. Usually it said Peter, James, and John. I don't know why I threw Peter at the end. Or with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before the night of his arrest. And he tells them, remain here with me and watch and pray. And what do they do? Fall asleep. Not just once, twice, three times they fall asleep on him. Surely they desired to pray. Surely they wanted to be obedient, but it was like late, late night. They were up all night, just had the Lord's Supper. They'd been hanging out with the boys. They'd gone with him in the middle of the night, almost morning. And they're tired. And so, unfortunately, their desire to pray wasn't enough. Instead, they became these iconic illustrations of what every Christian experiences in this failure to pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So not only is it our apathy or our or laziness or whatever it might be, but also we're just weak. We fail because we're weak. We're unable to find the energy. Or maybe our minds are just exhausted. We can't even think through what we need to pray. We're unwilling to sacrifice other things to press in and pray. And I would guess if you're like me, you've been resolute to pray. You've told people, I'm going to pray for you, and then you've failed. Maybe it's because you're too tired. Maybe you just forgot. Or maybe you don't ever actually pray for them. It's just something you do to be nice. And you tell them, I'm going to pray for you as a way of saying I'm thinking of you. But you never really intended to pray. Hopefully that's not the case. But I know that happens. I often doubt when people say I'm going to pray for you that they're praying for me. Because I'm a skeptic. And I have a hard time trusting people. But also I know my life. And I know my experience and my failures. And so I'm telling you that so you know you're not alone. But it's certainly not okay. It's a part of our fallen condition that we would fail in these ways. But prayer is, is this, it can't, it can't be this obligatory thing. It can't be, I need to be consistent. It needs to be, who's God? What has He done? Who am I? What do I do? And then moving to action. We're overloaded with distraction for any of that to be thought through, for any of that to be considered. We're overloaded by social media, by News by friends needing our attention, family, our own sense of, of guilt and shame that buries us in sin or whatever it might be. We're overloaded by many things. And ironically, our minds are too focused on our anxieties to bring our anxieties to the one who can do something about it. And it's much easier to just express our complaints and our thoughts through the, the Twitter sphere than to pray it to God. 
Just tweet it out real quick. Maybe that'll help. Or we, we want to express our boredom through Snapchat or Snapchat or, or we want to send out a gift or a funny video because um, I don't have anything to do right now. I might as well do this. We, I, mean, I mean, you're never alone. It's, it's just we live in a world where technology has made it possible for us to always be connected and never have solitude. And so culturally, we have prayerlessness that abounds and it's continuing to grow because technology continues to advance. And there's no need to be alone, so why would I ever be alone? But if there's no solitude, then it's unlikely you would ever have a healthy life of prayer. And, and whatever the case is for you, maybe you pray a lot. You should certainly pray more. More consistently, more authentically, more for others instead of yourself. Just more. But I don't want today to be a day about shaming you into prayer. I don't want you to leave here on some guilt trip to try harder. I don't think any of that would be helpful. It's more than just the practice of prayer, more than the discipline of prayer that we need. We need this heart change. I hope that you'll see today that, that prayer is beautiful and wonderful and it's a gracious gift from God that according to His Word, we should do because it brings us joy and satisfaction to be near to the Father as His children. That you would leave here longing to pray. She would even right now desire to pray, to go to God in prayer because He's King of the universe and He's your Father. So yes, you can be more disciplined. And seeing my faults and my failures, I've fought to be disciplined in prayer. I really wanted this. So I've, I've made ways that I could do better. When I tell people I pray, I started saying, I'll pray for you now. And I'll start praying now. And then if that didn't work, I would not just say, I'll pray for you now. I'd text out the prayer and send it. So actually doing the prayer it's just... Things I have to do. I have to set time in my day and time in my week and time in my month to really be intentional to pray because I know it's valuable. I want to be obedient and I fail because I'm weak, because I'm lazy, because I'm apathetic. So I structure my life in a way that I will pray. But discipline isn't enough. The practice in itself isn't enough. Desire in itself isn't enough. It's far more than a, a practice. It's a position of your heart. It's not about the doing as much as it is about the believing. Because our doing flows out of our belief. So the ultimate problem is our belief. If your practice of prayer is hindered, it's not because you're not disciplined enough as much as it is your misunderstanding or your misapplication of the gospel. If you believed, you would pray. So I don't want to just talk about what prayer is, which is what I thought about originally when I thought I'm going to preach on prayer. I'll just talk about what is prayer. I want, you to, I want to talk about belief, understanding prayer, and then how do we do it if we really understand it. So as Christians, though, if we're going to talk about what prayer is as Christians, at a basic level, I think we get it. It's just expressing thanksgiving. It's making requests. Right? It's from us to God. It's not, it's not really communication because God doesn't pray to us. He speaks through His Word. But our expression to Him in prayers is calling on Him, realizing our need, going to Him. And, and if we understand it rightly, then we can see that it doesn't even need words. In fact, there's times where you can't even come up with the words to pray. It's just this pain and this suffering and you know you need God. That's prayer. In fact, Scripture calls it that. Romans 8.26 says, For we do not know what to pray for as we, for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
that even when there's no words, you just know it. You need God. You're not enough. You can't depend on yourself or anything else in the world. So you go to the Father. And you go with, with honor and reverence and respect, but you go as a child knowing he, can, he or she can go to the Father. And prayer is, is turning away from dependence on you or anything else depending on God. Because He has what you need and He's willing to provide it. Now, there's much more the Scripture says about prayer and there's much more we could say about what it is. Uh, I want to encourage you to seek that out on your own. There's, there's books and, and there's Scripture for you to find that. Concordance. Look up the word prayer. Or pray. Make it simple. Find it in Scripture. Look, Google prayers of Scripture. See what the saints before us have prayed. How has God laid it out for us? Go to Him. Ask Him to show you what it means. Ask Him to teach you how to pray. I want to be sure that we see all of this is available to us in Scripture. And there are, there are passages like the one we're about to look at. It's just laid out. Here's what it is. And you can search it out on your own. But knowing, knowing all that we've just said, I want to be sure we know in light of who God is, what He's done, who He's made us, and what we do, because of all that, we can ask the question, how do we pray? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 6. So we're going to look through this passage of Scripture. And, and I'm not going to read through it first and then go through it. I'm just going to read through it and talk about it as we go. And I hope that you'll, you'll read it differently than before. That you'll see it as something that Christ has laid before us, expecting us to know the gospel has done this work, making us a child we belong to God, and this is how you pray in light of it. And he does so by first saying how not to pray. We're going to start in verse 5. This is how you don't do it. And then he goes into, here's an example of it. And so we'll look at all of that. Now before, I, before I get into, well actually, let's just read this first part. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Like That's all they're getting. Yeah, people are going to think they're awesome because they pray, but that's it for them. Verse 6, but when you, this is unique because it's singular. Jesus almost always, and it's really Scripture almost always, when it uses you as plural to the church. But Jesus is talking to you. There's some importance here of solitude. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So understand, this is to the individual. The solitude is important, but even as the church, a group of believers, we can, we can go to God as an individual in solitude. He's my Father. I'm before Him. And He sees me in secret, knowing that our brothers and sisters are with us. So this still applies to corporate prayer. And in fact, verse 7, He goes back to plural, speaking to His disciples. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases to the Gentiles, or as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so this understanding here is it's this rambling anxiously. The Gentiles are pagans. They don't know God. But they're doing this because they're supposed to. So they're, they're praying with unbelief, with wrong motivation. They don't have faith. They don't see themselves as children of God. They just are trying to do it because the Jews say they're supposed to or whatever reason they have. This, this understanding that we can possibly go to God, even as His children, not feeling like we are children, and we'll just ramble, we'll just mumble or babble, throw up empty words. It's 
pointless. So he says, verse 8, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Be comforted by that. Your God knows what you need. He just longs to hear it from you. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to ask. So, we, so just to look at this first part, we approach God in prayer. If we approach Him with arrogance or self-centeredness, then we're a hypocrite. If we approach Him with, without belief, then we're a pagan. We're a Gentile. We're tossing up empty words. This can be seen in our, in our behavior, our response, how we expect God to hear our prayers, how we feel about it when He does answer them like we don't want Him to. If you're unappreciative, if, you're, if you go to Him thinking you deserve, see, a confidence before Him is different than I'm entitled to this. If you think I deserve this and you're not appreciating the opportunity to even present the prayers, then it's likely you're praying like a hypocrite or a pagan. If you feel like you're angry or you're angry or anxious or disappointed by the ways he's answering your prayers, it's likely you're praying like a hypocrite or a pagan. If you think this didn't happen the way I want it to happen, and you're mad about it, you bring that back to God. Because he knows. And you trust him. And you deal with the sin in your heart before him. Confess. Your anger. It's okay, to, it's okay to feel it. It's not okay to stay that way. This shows you're approaching God like a business contract. I did my part. I paid my dues. Why aren't you keeping up your end? But if we see God as, as our business partner instead of His children, then we'll never pray. You'll do what you think is praying, but that's not what it is. So we know, it's like we know we've been invited into the house of God, but we don't see we've been invited as his child, as an adopted child. But religiously, we're thinking of it like we're a tenant. He's our landlord. So religious people, pagans and hypocrites, think of God as this cold, distant, impersonal God. He's a landlord. I have to follow the rules of the house. I pay my dues. But Christians see God as personal. Loving, gracious, compassionate. He's our Father. So we long to hear, or we, He longs to hear from His children. In fact, He delights in hearing from His children. Though He may be mighty and holy and set apart, we can go before Him. It's, it's a simple social structure. We, I mean, it's a simple social understanding. We can logically break this down. So a stranger, you have no relationship with a stranger, right? We all understand that. If you don't know Him, you don't know Him. So you can try to talk to strangers, and you do, but there's some social rules you follow. Like you don't go up to a stranger and say, hey, that looks good. Can I try some of your burger? It's weird. You don't ask a stranger if you can take their kid to the park. You don't stand in line at Walmart and ask the stranger behind you if they'll give you a back massage while you're waiting. Just understand there's, <laughs> there's social structure around your relationship with a stranger because there's not a relationship. But when you consider personal relationships, when you consider people you actually know, there's still these categories of it. There's this business understanding, and then there's more intimate personal relationships. And with the intimate ones, there's like concentric circles where it gets more and more, like your wife, and then, you know, it grows out, close friends, and then whatever. With the business understanding, it's fundamentally a different relationship. Business relationships are, are totally based on performance. And personal family relationships are totally based on like a covenant more than a contract. They're, it's you do your part, I'll do my part, but if either one of us fails, we're still here. Performance base is 
You do your part, I do my part. Either one of us fails, it's over. So we have to see the difference. Consider this, maybe this would be helpful. Say you, say there's this guy, awesome guy, and he owns a big house and he has an apartment above his garage. You know, those exist. I've seen them on TV shows and stuff. I think there's some in the Garden District. Anyway, so he, he lets his college student move in and now he's the landlord to the college student who lives above his garage. But he also adopts a son, a teenage son. So right away, we see there's, there's a difference in the relationship. Same time frame, guy moves in, kid moves into the house. But fundamentally, the relationship between the adopted son and the tenant are different. So, in the middle of the night, the tenant's having some, a bad dream. Wakes up scared. No doubt, the first thought to his mind is, I'm going to go to my landlord and let him comfort me. Right? It's not going to happen. And if he did, it'd be weird. If he get out of my room, what are you doing in here? And maybe the adopted son doesn't right away feel like this is his father. So obviously the analogy would go, if it played out perfectly, the adopted son wakes up, thinks, I'm going to go to my father. But maybe he doesn't. Because it's not been his father until now. It's kind of weird. He's not sure. But from the father's perspective, that's not what he's thinking. That's not how he feels. Because when, a, when an adoption happens, very little has to do with, I mean, maybe at a certain age, kid decides, but it's totally up to the parents that are adopting this kid. Like, they're in control of the situation. They decide whether or not they're going to make the adoption. And everything goes through. Legally, this child is theirs, just like having been born into that family. So, so maybe this kid brought in some baggage. Maybe he's feeling ashamed. Maybe he's feeling unwanted. Maybe he feels like he doesn't belong. And so he thinks he can't go to his father. But for the father, he longs for that child to see him as father. He longs for him to know, no matter what, he can come to him. That yes, there's some baggage, there's some things some, that discipline will work out along the way, but when it happened, when the adoption happened legally, when it happened, the identity was shifted. You're no longer this unwanted child who belongs to no one. You're mine. You belong to me. You can come to me. I long to hear your needs. Interrupt my day. Interrupt my night. Come to me always. I'm yours. You're mine. Nothing's ruining that. If the tenant doesn't pay his bills, if the tenant plays loud music and that's against the rules, he's out. But you can do no wrong. You're mine. You can always come to me. So we can see clearly there's a distinction that needs to be made. And maybe this child still fears the father because it's a man who's got control and power and fears the father. But the love overwhelms. And over time, the hope is the child would see the father as loving and caring, know that he can go to him always. And with this respect for what he's done for him, he saved him from being fatherless. He saved him from having no one. And he brought him into the family. It's a much stronger analogy when we consider all that God has done for us as our father. And it paints more clearly this picture of going to God 
Because surely we wouldn't go to God and beg for selfish things if we see who He is. We see what He's done. We see what He's called us to as His, as His missionaries, as His family. And so, on one hand, we have this business relationship is I have something for you. Perform well and you'll get to keep it. And this personal relationship that says, I am something for you. You've done nothing to deserve it. You cannot lose it. I'm yours, you're mine, and nothing changes it. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And you have no secrets from Him. If you think somehow you're hiding it, you're not. Your relationship with Him is the most significant relationship you have, so your communication with Him should be the most significant communication you have, the most vulnerable, the most open, the most honest. You can tell Him anything. You can give Him everything because He's he's opened it up and He can accomplish anything you need and He longs to do so. So then, how should we pray? We're going to look at this example prayer as a close to this because it closes it well. Jesus says, know all of this. Know the gospel. Believe the gospel. See who your God is. And then pray like this. We're going to read this, these first two verses. There's, there's really three imperatives here. And, and they, I'm, I'm saying this before because it's really important we see it rightly. You can see it as a proclamation of truth alone. But that's not what it is really. In Greek, they're known as third person imperatives. And it's important you know that because typically we, we translate it like, uh, let this be done, or may this be done, or, or God, do this. So instead of, uh, instead of hallowed be your name, it's really let your name be hallowed. And the ESV doesn't translate that way, but it's important that we see it that way because what we're doing here is we're saying, God, make yourself holy. We're not saying, hey, God's holy. He knows, all right? And it, it's not enough to just recognize it. He's, he's asking us to beg Him to be that. And we'll walk through it a little more specifically as we get in. So verse 9. Knowing all of this, pray then like this. Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he's set apart like no other. Hallowed is this ancient word meaning holy, this sanctified like none else. Not just regarding that he's holy because even demons do that. But instead we cry, I would, Lord, help me value it. Let me treasure it. Let me be in reverence to this holiness. Let me see that you love me and be in awe of that love. Let me believe that you're my Father. More than anything, let me see, I'm adopted. You're my father, I'm holy like, any, un, like no one else, unlike anything else, better than everything else. We pray, Father, you're holy. Make me believe it. So feel that. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And this is, this is praying something that is certainly going to happen. His, his will is going to be done. His kingdom is going to come. But he asks us to pray it, and specifically on earth as it is in heaven. So, so the, again, this is the plea to God for Maranatha. This is the longing for Advent. This is God, come, Lord, establish your kingdom. Let it be on earth like it is in heaven. This is, this is far beyond just reading some words on a screen or a piece of paper. Lord, let it happen. Like, let the angels, the way they see you in heaven, let that be how we see you on earth. Free from all sin. God, free us from sin. Get rid of it. Let us celebrate you totally uninhibited by anything on this earth. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let it happen. And these three things that we're asking of God is, is let me believe you're holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. 
are then followed by three personal requests, these practical requests. Lord, provide sustenance. Lord, provide forgiveness. Lord, provide deliverance. And the next verses, so verse 11. And again, personal doesn't mean individual. This can happen as a corporate body, and that's why it stays plural. Give us this day our daily bread. We have physical need. We know we have physical need. Jesus is saying here, I know you have physical need. You need daily bread. He's not asking for abundance. He's not asking for a month's supply. So that's indicative of praying every day for this. But there's a need. That's all we're asking for. Give us our daily bread. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those, or as we forgive our debtors. Sorry, the memorized King James starts coming out every once in a while. As we forgive, as we have forgiven our debtors. Let's jump to verse 14 and 15 because Jesus explains, or he adds to this a little bit. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your, fa- your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we have to pause here for a minute because if you're like me, it's uncomfortable to hear that phrasing because it sounds like he's saying, you better forgive him because if you don't, God's going to take back his forgiveness. Or you better forgive him, otherwise you can't earn your forgiveness from God. It's certainly not, because there's clear places elsewhere in Scripture that it doesn't compromise, grace alone saves us. So we have to see there certainly is a, a, a correlation between forgiveness and being forgiven. And I think Jesus is showing us here something more profound about belief than he is about the act of forgiving. And you can search this out on your own, but in my search, we've seen this and I, and I present this to you like truth because I believe it's true. Otherwise, I wouldn't tell you. So, so elsewhere, we've seen clearly through parables he's told or whatever else. If we're unwilling to forgive whoever for whatever reason, that's evidence that we don't rightly understand forgiveness. So we don't have an appreciation for the good that comes from being forgiven by God. We don't have an appreciation for the grace of our Heavenly Father to forgive us of our sins if we don't forgive our debtors. So forgiveness overall is far complex, more complex than we can go into right now. It needs a sermon series of its own. So we, we point to it here, though. I cannot, you, you cannot say you forgive people and then not believe you're forgiven by God. And you cannot say you're forgiven by God and then not forgive people. It can't be true that you understand the beauty and the wonder and, and how valuable and how gracious God is and simultaneously think the wrongdoing against you cannot be forgiven. That somehow it's foolish of you to forgive others as you take their forgiveness from God. That just It's incompatible. It doesn't go together. There's a disconnect. And that's his point here. So Lord, forgive us. Let it be understood. We are forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or, or from the evil one. So here we need to see God doesn't tempt us. He tells us elsewhere in Scripture He doesn't tempt His children. However, everything in life, every moment, every suffering, every decision to make, every morning you wake up and you want your coffee more, more than you want Jesus. That's me talking to me. Oh, coffee. Everything you feel and think and process, decision you make, everything is a test. Do you depend on God? Do you long for God? Do you see He's better? So you're either going to give in to your temptation 
or you're going to draw nearer to God with everything you do. So the prayer is, God, lead us not into the temptation. That is, God, give us the faith to believe you're better. Let me direct everything at Jesus. Let me fix my eyes on Jesus. God, make me more about you. Don't let me be led into the temptation. So either we see the test as Job did and see that we're not going to give into temptation because clearly God is better and we're sanctified in that. Or we fail and we give into the temptation and Satan has his way for however long God allows it, but certainly God is in control. And we curse God like Satan wants us to. But every moment and every day, God wants us to trust Him, to choose Him over our sin. So we say, give us the faith to see sin is not better than Jesus. That we would not be fooled by temptation. That we would not be taken captive by Satan. Rather, deliver us from the evil one. Let me not be led into temptation. And as we see this prayer as a whole, this prayer that Jesus lays out for us, this is what it should look like. It's structure. It's not pray this exact word. It's pray like this. It's understand this is what prayer should be like. Having understood the gospel, been changed by the gospel, knowing who God is, who you're coming before, what He's done for you, making you His child, opening the door for you to always come to Him. For who would go to the the king in the middle of the night but His child? Only a child would do that. And seeing the change that's done in you, you move to pray because that's what you do if you understand it. And this is how you do it. So seeing, seeing it as a whole, we think through it. I think John Piper helped me understand it in this way, that, that God is most hallowed. These are my words. I'm just John Pipering it. It's a verb. God is most hallowed when we are most satisfied in Him. I say that because I think the point of the prayer is what He says at the beginning. Father, make Yourself holy. It's all about the glory of God. God is most hallowed when we are satisfied in Him, when we're dependent on Him, when we go to Him. And the coming of His kingdom and His will being done and the provision and His forgiveness and His sanctifying us, delivering us from evil. God is glorified when we are satisfied, set on Him. He's most glorified. He's most set apart. He's made most holy. When we see that only He can hear all of these prayers and answer them. Only He can take away this anxiety. Only He can take away the doubt. And more than that, he tells us to be persistent in it. And the Greek word used for persistence is this nagging, this begging, this going after, this bothering him. He wants us to bother him with it. Like even earthly fathers fail there. God wants you to come to him. Keep asking him these prayers, the salvation of your your child or your, your dad or whoever it might be, the restoration of a relationship, the brokenness to be restored, the healing to finally be done. Keep asking him. Keep begging him to move. Keep going to him. He hears your prayers. He's faithful to answer your prayers. He always will. Maybe not now, but he will. Go to him. Because He's made most holy. He's made most set apart. He's glorified the most when we do that. And the hope is that we find that prayer isn't this getting what we want. But it's God being glorified. It's not this God make me happier. It's God be glorified. And as as a result, I will be satisfied. God be made, made holy in my life. Let people see that you're holy. Let people see that you're enough. More than my sin, more than my satisfaction, more than me getting what I want, more than me being happy, more than me being content, more than me seeing this prayer answered so that I feel good about myself. 
where I feel like you hear me, or so others will think, God hears his prayers. Just be glorified because you answer the prayer. Let it be all about you. And if that's the result of my prayer, I'll be satisfied. If that's the result, I'll be satisfied in you, not in the prayer. Earlier this week, Bruce sent me a devotion. And I really appreciate those. If you want to send me devotions, please do. Uh, and and it, it was by John Piper. It's part of his uh, series, on his devotional series, which, by the way, they're making videos right now. I just found this out. They're really awesome. Anyway. And there's a quote in it that I want to read to you because it's so applicable to what we're saying. And it's kind of a close to all of this and understanding how the gospel connects to this because prayer is to draw us to the Father. Prayer is us going to Him, being near to Him, being dependent and finding satisfaction in Him. And so he says, This is the center of the gospel. That God has done astonishing and costly things to draw us near to Himself. He has sent His Son to suffer and to die so that through Him we might draw near. Everything that He has done in the great plan of redemption is so that we might draw near. And that nearness is to our joy and for His glory. So go to Him. Church, because we can. Because He's made it available for us. Because our hope lies in this going to the one we're dependent on. Because of who He is and what He's done and who He's made us as His children, let's go to the Father, our King, in prayer. And let's do it often. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much because when I consider who You are, my Father, all I can do is thank You. God, I pray that Our prayer would not be tossing up words. Our prayer would not be this, we care more about what the people in the room hear me saying than we do the Father hearing me saying. Let our prayer be genuine and sincere and frequent, but not out of routine or or obligation. Let it be this desperate desire to see you glorified in our lives, glorified in our church, glorified in the salvation of the lost, glorified in the city because you're restoring all things for your glory. God, let us truly be a people who pray, not because we want our way, but because we want yours. Let us find ourselves dependent on your word, standing firm on the foundation that is truth, that we're sure of. And let us see how it clearly calls us to mission, it clearly calls us to discipline, it clearly calls us to sacrifice. And in all of that, let us pray as we war against sin, as we desire to see things accomplished, Let us pray. Make us pray. And in doing so, Father, let us remember you're our Father. Let us remember you're our King. You're King of all things. You're sovereignly in control and you've never lost it and you never will. You have what we need and you give us what we need. And so, Father, we pray that your your kingdom would come. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would give us this day our daily bread. That you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that you would lead us not into temptation, but let us see, God, let us see Jesus is better. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. The way the world would distract us, the way our, our sinful old self would distract us, the way that Satan would distract us, the way that 
He would seek to destroy us. Let us see it. Let us be aware of the war and fight. Calling on you to continue to give us everything we need to fight. Be worshipped in our hearts as we seek solitude as individuals. Be worshipped as we come together with one voice in this gathering. Because we're your church and we don't want to be anyone else's church. We're your children. We come to you because we can. You've made it possible. Let Christ be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.